Amen. Praise the Lord for these songs, for the worship team, for the leadership there. Let's pray as we go before God's Word together this morning. We simply ask, Lord, that You would open our hearts and our minds to receive Your truth. You are worthy, Lord, of our undivided attention. For Jesus and in Jesus we pray. Amen. So far in our series through the letter to the Ephesians, we have seen simply this. Paul blessing God because of His glorious grace. Right? He's 200 plus words in one long sentence of adoration for the Sovereign God, Father, Son, Spirit, who He says has poured out His grace, elected and adopted us, accomplished our salvation, sealed us with His Holy Spirit, guaranteed our future, and all of this, why? Out of His own love. Period. Nothing of our own we bring. Amen? That's about it. Let's pray and be done. It should be. I want you to think about this. In other words, what Paul has is a vision and understanding of just how good God is. In fact, that's what keeps Paul going. That's what allows Paul to continue to preach and to write regardless of his circumstances. And and think about where he's writing this letter from. Where's he writing from? Prison. He's in prison writing this letter and the Ephesians know he's in prison and he wants the Ephesian Christians to know what it takes to have the same deep sense of security in Christ that Paul has, that it doesn't matter if he's in prison. He wants us to have that too. In fact, some scholars think that a lot of what Paul's writing to the Ephesians is because they were facing some discouragement. We're going to come to that in chapter 3. He wants them to stay strong. He wants them to stay focused. I want you to ponder this question with me if you would. How, How could Paul face such awful trials and go through them the way he went through them with such confidence? How does he do that? If you've been keeping up with the 5x5x5 reading plan, shameless plug, but I hope you'll keep up with it. We've been in the book of Acts for this last couple of weeks, and in the book of Acts, we see Paul imprisoned, we see him face mobs, we see him beaten, as a matter of fact, there's even more in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He tells us that five times he dealt with the 40 lashes minus one. Three times he says he was beaten with rods. One time he was even stoned. And they thought he had died. Otherwise they'd have kept going. But he just keeps getting up. <laughs> he keeps getting up and moving on to the next city to preach some more and get beaten some more. He didn't care. How? How does he go through this? What's the secret? 
don't know if you've read some of the stories from Christian martyrs of the past. If you have not done so, I urge you to do so. Pick up a book about the ancient church and see how they dealt with the persecution that they dealt with. Read stories like the one about Polycarp. How many of you guys have heard of Polycarp? Polycarp was uh, supposed to be one of the disciples of the Apostle John. He lived late 1st century, early 2nd century. And it's said that he was burned at the stake for refusing to worship the Roman gods and forsake Jesus. Or read about Perpetua of the 3rd century, a wealthy young woman from a pagan family. She was caught as a convert to Christianity. If I remember correctly, she was actually in a, in a catechism class. She was learning the Bible and learning what it means to be a Christian. And they came and they arrested her along with others. And they took her... And by the way, don't be afraid to come to classes like that anymore just because I just want to make sure. They, they took her and, and they, they threw her into a stadium with wild animals that ravaged her to death. But, but before that happened, her... Her wealthy father, pagan father, came to her and begged her to give up Christianity. Begged her. She said, for me, for your husband, for your infant son, do it for us. And the story goes this way. She apparently asked him this question. She said, could a a vase be called by any other name than what it is? Strange question. The father says, no. To which she replied, well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am. A Christian. Wow. What did these people know and believe that allowed this kind of strength in the face of such adversity? That's what I want us to think about this morning. I think that's what's on Paul's mind. In our text this morning, Paul has just praised the Lord, and now he turns to thank very common in his letters, and then he turns to pray for the people of Ephesus. That's also common in his letters. But what I want us to look at, and what I think is very interesting, is just what Paul prays for. Just what he's praying for. So please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible, I'm sure, in the chair in front of you, under the in front of you grab those open up i believe it's page 969 i think that's right ephesians chapter 1 and i urge you to keep them open keep those bibles open as we work through the text this morning ephesians 1 starting at verse 15 let's hear what the apostle paul writes for this reason because i have heard of your faith in the lord jesus and your love toward all the saints I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen? What a glorious passage. What a glorious passage. Actually, by the way, Paul can only outdo himself. This is what he does. So the first, verses 3-14, through 14, that was one long sentence in Greek. And these verses are also one long sentence in Greek. I think it gets shorter as the book goes on, but it's still one long sentence. Three main headings to look at in the text. If you look at the back of your bulletin, there are, there's a short outline there. One, what Paul prays for. Two, what Paul wants the Ephesians to understand. And three, what this means for us. Before we get into those points, however, I do want us to look at verses 15 and 16. Take a look there in your Bibles. Notice just a few things. Paul is saying, I have reports of the work God has done in you. Because of the way I know God works, I know He's worked in you. You trust in Jesus. You know Him. You've received His gracious gifts. You love the saints. You have love for other believers. 1 John tells us that Christians do that. We love the brethren and the cistern. Okay? Paul sees these things. He, he knows that those things don't just come about naturally. There is evidence here of the Spirit's work. And so Paul gives thanks. Not to the Ephesians, but to God. Actually, look at verse 16 because he doesn't give thanks. That's not what Paul tells them at all. Paul tells them that he doesn't stop giving thanks. You see that? I do not cease giving thanks for you. But, but notice that it's not just thanksgiving for Paul. Paul wants more. Ephesians have faith and love. The Christian life doesn't end at turning to Christ, at conversion. That's where it begins. And so there are two issues, I think, that are on Paul's mind pastorally as he's looking to, to pray for the Ephesian Christians. The first thing he's, I think he's thinking about here is what do Christians need to grow? How do Christians grow? What do we need as believers to grow? And the second is already alluded to, what do Christians need to deal with trials and discouragement? This is what Paul is thinking about as he's thinking about these new believers there that he wants to thrive. So Paul tells them, look, I'm praying for you. He's praying to the very Father of glory, the one he has just worshipped, the one who before the foundation of the earth adopted and predestined, and all these things he's saying, I'm praying to Him for you but what's he praying for what paul prays for it's our first heading and you can write this down in your notes what paul prays for it's very simple knowledge of god knowledge of god and before you think that well we all have knowledge of god just bear with me knowledge of god is what paul prays for let me ask you this what do you pray for people you guys may have a prayer list, a prayer journal. What, what do you pray for people? I guess, I guess we should ask it this way. First of all, what do people ask for? 
When they come to you and say, hey, would you please pray for me? What is it they're normally asking for? They think things like uh, health, right? Uh, job search. Spouse search. Obstacles. What else? Perhaps they, they're praying for, asking for prayer for, for wisdom, for difficult circumstances, something they're going through. And by the way, these things aren't bad things at all. They're good things. I'm sure the Ephesian Christians wanted those things too. But that's not exactly what's on Paul's mind. Do you notice that? What about without someone asking? If you love somebody, your own children, your own parents, your own family, people that are close to you, the church, we're supposed to be praying for one another. What do we pray for? Lord, keep them safe. Keep them away from harm. Give them good health. We love people. We pray for them. What do we want for them? What do we seek for them? Beloved, look at what Paul asks for because this will tell us a lot about what we believe and what we value. What we pray for tells us about what we are thinking about. What's Paul's prayer? That the Father of glory may give you what? He starts with this, the most important thing, the Spirit. You pray for that for people? Or give them the Holy Spirit. Specifically, look at the text. He asks for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's the Holy Spirit to give them wisdom and reveal to them truth about God. Listen, our human spirit can't be the spirit or it can't be a disposition of revelation. That doesn't make sense. What Paul is talking about is the Holy Spirit. He wants them to have the Spirit work in them. But it's even more specific than that. It isn't a prayer that the Spirit will walk with them and give them wisdom and revelation for everyday life. No, it's that the Holy Spirit will help them to know God. Do you see that there? In the knowledge of Him. Now verses 13 and 14, we already said the Spirit of God is with every Christian. We know that. What Paul is praying for appears to be an awareness or awakening in each Christian of what the Spirit has given them, is doing in them. That you would have a deep knowledge, an existential knowledge of God. Notice that Paul clarifies further, it's not just cognitive, it's not just intellectual. What Paul wants for these Christians, who he's so thankful for and he cares so much about, he wants their hearts, you see that? To be enlightened. To know God deeply and experientially. He wants them to be convinced internally, aware, to live by this knowledge of God, to feel it, to see it, to breathe it, to live in it. Is there anything more important than that? Sounds like what Paul says in Philippians 3. He just wants to know Christ. And now he's praying that same thing for everybody else. But how much time do we spend praying about such things? Or pursuing them? I'm convicted by this thought because my pastoral prayers often are more about what? Oh, so-and-so is ill. So-and-so needs strength. so instead of praying for the floodgates to open up, that every single one of us would experience the depth of knowing Christ. Here's what Paul's praying for. 
He's praying that each Ephesian Christian and every Christian might come to know the riches of what we have in Christ, like Paul knew it, so we would be able to adore the triune God the way that Paul has just adored Him. He wants us to write one long sentence of praise and never stop. He wants us to know how to deal with adversity because we already know the mysteries of God are revealed in Christ. And we could battle whatever comes our way because we know that we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Is that what you want? For yourself? For others? That's what Paul's praying for. What are specific things? Because there's more. He, He gets pretty specific there. This is all still under the first heading. There are three specific things that Paul prays for. First, their future hope. What God has prepared for them. He wants them to know it. Look at verse 18. The hope to which He's called you. Beloved, do you live with an awareness every single day that God has called you to be His own and there is no stopping the call of God? What He has called you to, He will get you to. What He has called you to, He's going to work in you. It can never be taken away. There is nothing greater than what we will get one day in glory. And it's ours already. That whatever happens, His calling can't be thwarted. That everything that happens is part of His purpose and His plan to prepare us to be with Him. And you will be. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compre- uh, excuse me beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen so beloved what paul is praying for here in this first part he is praying that the ephesians have eyes to see the unseen. Do you see the unseen? I hope so. Paul's prayer is that the Ephesian Christians know experientially this hope. It changes everything. It helps us deal with the chaos of the age that we're living in. God's plan is still moving forward. There will be an end. There will be a judgment. It helps us to orient our lives with a future focal point. So we stop living for the temporary things that can never fulfill us, can never please us, but instead we live for eternity. That's why Paul is praying for them to get this because if we get this, beloved, it will change everything. Second, Paul prays that they would know their current value, what they mean to God. Look back at verse 18, the second half now. That you may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Look, Paul's calling the saints, he's calling all Christian saints, but he's calling the saints God's glorious inheritance. He's not talking about what we inherit. He's actually talking about us as God's inheritance. Do you see that there? A rich inheritance at that. What does that even mean? Receive this, beloved, if you're a Christian, Chosen, predestined, adopted, 
God, the creator of the universe, considers you his treasure. You are, to put in other terms, the apple of God's eye. And Paul wants you to know it. And he wants you to believe it. He's done everything to make you his own. He values you. He cherishes you. And he did all this even before the foundation of the world as he purposed to call you his very own in Christ. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Let that sink in. Here's what one author said. He says, how wonderful it must feel to these people, accustomed as they have been to worshiping capricious and self-serving gods and goddesses, now to be in a relationship with a God who dearly loves them and values them as his choice inheritance. If you're a Christian, that's you. It's you. By the way, notice that I didn't say if you're a strong Christian. And I didn't say if you're a really mature Christian, then that's you. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus, this is you. Do you see what Paul's praying for? He's praying that the Ephesian Christians have good theology. That's what he's praying for. He's praying for good theology because good theology leads to a proper response of faith and gratitude and right living. Amen? When we know God for who He really is, as as the Spirit is enlightening our hearts, we grow in love and gratitude and desire to obey, and we grow in worship. And by the way, that's why bad theology is so dangerous. When we present the God of the Bible in the wrong light, when we make it seem that Christians, they themselves are always somehow, their salvation's always in jeopardy, and they can't have assurance before God because God is just waiting for them to slip up and and judge them, we present a very harmful view of a God who saves. But Paul still wants more knowledge of God for them. He's still praying. There's more he wants. As though that was enough. Third, Paul prays that they might know their present power in Him. What they have in God right now. Look at verse 19. That you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. Look, Paul keeps doing this. He just heaps up words, uh, adjectives, synonyms to say the same thing but he wants us to know just how powerful god is and what we have in him and so he piles up all these words that have to do with power and strength and he says this is what god has and it's for you the unbounded exceeding hyper abounding power of god is on your side what does that mean oh christian paul is praying that you would understand it That you would know this power and you would taste of its reality. Look, Paul knows there's discouragement in this world. He knows there is anxiety. He knows that we turn on the TV and we think the the world is coming to an end. He knows that there are things that we're going through in our personal lives that look like everything is just collapsing and and falling apart. He knows that maybe we're afraid of things in this world and maybe we're even afraid of losing our faith. He says, do you, do you understand the power of God that is already yours? 
O Christian? He's going to turn to focus on this power of God under what we call our second heading here, what Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to understand. You can put in your notes, the power of God. That's what he wants us to understand. Let me repeat, look at verse 19. That power of God is for us. It is toward us. Notice verses 20 and 21. Paul describes the power of God. It's working in us. He says, you want to know this power that's at work in you? It's the same power that caused the resurrection of Jesus. Can you imagine? So we have no right to fear death because resurrection power is already ours. It's the same power that seated Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We call this the ascension and the session of Jesus. And look what Paul says. He's above all rule, authority, power, dominion. He's above every name that is to be named. What's this about? It's the language of the religions in Ephesus. Remember, they were into magic and gods and goddesses and incantations and spiritual powers and and part of their spiritual world and, and the magical world that they lived in was naming names. If you could heap up enough names You call on the right God. You invoke the right God. That power will come and be on your side. So Paul says, look, Jesus is above every name that can be named. He's saying, don't worry about names anymore. You only need one. His name is Jesus. Paul, who doesn't, by the way, want them only to know Jesus' name, he wants them to know His character Know Him deeply. He wants you to know Him deeply. So the power that resurrected Jesus is ours, so we have no fear of death. The power of ascension is ours, and there's no power in this or any other world that is above Jesus. And then he alludes to Psalm 110 to speak of the reality that everything is put under the feet of Jesus. And that Jesus is the supreme ruler over all things. That the power that subjected everything and put everything under Jesus' feet is the power that stands behind you. How could you be afraid? How could anything bring us down? And by the way, as if that's not enough, Paul says that Jesus is head over all things, but He's also in a unique way head over the church, that's us, And actually, notice the language there. He says that he is given to the church. A gift. He is the head, we are his body. And since we are his body in some way, we have to understand that we too are raised into the heavenlies above all those other powers as well. And Paul's going to go on to say that very thing in chapter 2. We are united to the one who reigns. Do you believe it? Paul wants you to. Paul's praying that Christians would understand the power of God at work in us, power over death, power over spiritual powers, power that conquers, power that has dominion. Why is this so important? It leads to our last heading, number three, what this means for us. You can put this in your notes. It means everything. It means everything. If that powerful head is our head and we are His body, the implications are vast. 
If this is the power of God toward us, and we know that we are His treasure, what can we fear? What can't we face? What can stop us from carrying the Gospel forward and declaring to the world, Jesus is Lord? What can stop us? What can rob us of, of the joy that we have in the Lord? It's no surprise, by the way, that in a similar context to this one, in Romans 8, Paul asks this question. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us what? All things. Wow. If He wouldn't withhold He withholds from you, O Christian. Believe it. And He's proven it because all of His power stands behind us. He asks a simple but profound question after that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything? This is what Paul wants us to understand. Nothing will be able to Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, what's our response to such love and power? Look back at Ephesians 1.23. Paul describes the church as the body of Christ, the fullness of of Him who fills all in all. That's interesting. In other words, we are filled with Christ. Now, think about what that means. We, as a church, as Christians, are filled. We're the fullness. That means we are filled with Christ. Then Paul explains further, we are filled with the One who is filling all things. We're filled with the One who's going to fill the entire world and universe. Remember, He is the summing up of all things under the headship of Christ. We're filled with the One who's going to reign over all things. That's His mission. To be all in all. To fill the world. To go to all the nations and all of the universe. To extend His reign to all places. And we're filled with Him. Which means that we get to be part of that mission. Instead of being afraid or discouraged or even upset, instead of worrying and focusing on temporary things in this world, if we are the body of Christ and He is our head, if we have all this power that is in our head, the Lord Jesus, then we should live both in humble dependence and in bold confidence. We should live and participate in His mission to make Him known throughout the world, starting with our own families, our neighborhoods. The early martyrs were convinced of this. All powers were already conquered under their feet in Christ. And so nothing the world could threaten them with would work. It couldn't stop them from preaching Jesus because they knew that even in death, their blood would preach Jesus loudly and clearly. I mentioned Polycarp earlier in the sermon martyred in the second century they wanted him to swear by caesar it's all he had to do wink wink just swear by caesar you don't have to really believe this stuff just swear by him here's his response if you vainly suppose that i will swear by the divine power of caesar as you say and if you pretend that you do not know who i am 
listen plainly. I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the Christian message, arrange a meeting and give me a hearing. The proconsul responds to him, I have wild animals. I'll throw you to them unless you change your mind. Polycarp responds, call them in. For we are not allowed to change from something better to something worse. He knew what he had in Jesus. That's what Paul wants us to know. We too must be confident in him and all he has done. No matter what we see around us, all things are subject and will be made subject to him. No matter what they threaten us with, no power can separate us from the one who loves us. No matter what the trial we endure, the plan and purpose of God will not be thwarted. So we are free to proclaim Jesus, His grace, His love. We're free to obey. We're free to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All this because by the Spirit we know God. Beloved, keep growing in your knowledge of Him. Because the more He is magnified in your sight, in your eyes, in your heart, in your mind, the more He will be amplified in your lives. And that's our prayer. That we may all know Him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, there is nothing like knowing You. There's nothing like seeing you for who you are and we only get a glimpse because our finite minds can't even grasp the fullness of your glory lord i pray that we would be like mary who sat at the feet of jesus wanting to learn pray that we would be like paul just wanting to know christ and be known by him and i pray for this congregation that they would all grow in the knowledge of you that they might declare the glory of You. For You are worthy. In Jesus' name, Amen.